Matthew 13, um, beginning at verse 31. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 30 kilograms of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. All through his life, Ronald Reed appeared very ordinary. If you were to bump into him in the street, you perhaps would think of him as a regular working class kind of guy. He served three tours uh, in the Second World War. And when he returned home, he spent the rest of his working life as a cleaner and a petrol station attendant. He lived life very frugally at a second-hand Toyota Yaris. He used safety pins to hold his coat together. His uh, regular breakfast treat was to go to the local hospital cafe, where he always had the same breakfast, an English muffin with peanut butter and a bit of coffee. And he always sat in the very same seat. Ronald Reed's life all appeared very ordinary until he died when he was 92 in 2014. And when his family came to settle his estate, they were astonished to discover that he was a multimillionaire. This man had invested the vast majority of his income for the whole of his life. And by the time he died, he was worth more than $8 million dollars. In his will, he had gifted $1.2 million to his local library and a whopping $4.8 million to the same hospital where he always had the same breakfast. Appearances can be deceiving. Same is true of the local church. As you look around the church today, there may be a number of reasons why you are discouraged. Last week, we thought about some of the discouragement that might come because we're surrounded in our day and in the world by sin and suffering and opposition. That's what those weeds were symbolizing. This week, Jesus addresses a different kind of discouragement, not opposition from the outside, but what appears to us to be the smallness of the kingdom of God. And to help us battle without discouragement, Jesus taught these two parables to remind us that appearances can be deceiving. What we need to remember is that God has promised to grow his kingdom. And because God has made the promise, it will happen. So we need to trust his promises and not despair by everything that might make us sad, which is easier said than done for All of us, but perhaps for some of us in particular. Because some of us have a temperament, a character that would always see the glass as half empty. 
And, and maybe one of your specialities in life is extrapolating the worst case scenario in any situation. Which when you think about the church and you look around our nation and indeed you look around so many countries around the world, you might be left thinking the church is really tiny and small and is in danger of being overrun by the world. Now, if you can relate to that, Jesus taught these parables to encourage you this morning. And, and the first way that we're going to see that is in the parable of the mustard seed, where Jesus teaches us that the growth of God's kingdom will amaze you. It will actually amaze you. The parable is very, very simple, but it's so simple, it's easy for us to forget how shocking it would have been for Jesus' first disciples. They were all expecting some kind of divine regime change. They were looking for immediate impact. They were looking for some earth-shattering global transition of power that would see God's kingdom just consume everything that stood in its way. And Jesus says the exact opposite. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And there is nothing impressive about a mustard seed. In fact, Jesus says, verse 32, that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. That's not to say that Jesus wasn't aware of the fact that there are seeds that are smaller than a mustard seed. Uh, For all of you horticulturalists, you will know that an orchid seed is about 20 times smaller than a mustard seed. And Jesus isn't unaware of that. He made them. (laughs) So that's not taking Jesus by surprise. Either Jesus is speaking literally or metaphorically. Literally, he may have been saying the mustard seed is the smallest of all the seeds that Jewish farmers sowed. So he might be meaning it in that sense. Or he may be referring to it metaphorically. So if you lived, I don't know if it's still the case today. If any of you have got some Jewish friends, perhaps you could ask them today. Uh, But certainly in Jesus' day, the phrase, as small as a mustard seed, it was, is a proverbial statement. It was like one of their memes. So if you were to say that something was as small as a mustard seed, you meant it's really, really, really tiny. And that's how Jesus uses the same phrase in Matthew 17. It was um, the occasion where a man brought his son who was possessed by demons to the disciples. They couldn't heal the boy. So the man brings the boy to Jesus, who heals the boy, and then Jesus turns around to the disciples and says, Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, meaning super, super tiny faith, then you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So bring that back to Matthew 13. Either Jesus is speaking literally about this being the smallest seed that farmers sowed, or He's using the Hebrew idea of this is what we say when we mean something's really small. Whichever is true, the kingdom of heaven starts as a tiny, tiny seed that you don't expect anything great to come from until you plant a mustard seed. And verse 32 tells us what happens when it grows. It's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch on its branches. Apparently in Palestine, the conditions in the soil and in the atmosphere are so good that if you plant a mustard seed, it will grow to 10 to 12 feet within the year. So that by the autumn, when its branches have hardened some, birds from 
all over the place are going to come and, well, in our translation, we have perch in its branches. Um, when I hear the word perch, I don't know whether this is just me, a perch sounds quite temporary. You kind of fly in, perch for a moment, and fly on. The Greek has a, an idea of something of a bit more permanence. The word is used to describe to make a tent, to, to encamp somewhere. Um, and if you've got <clears throat> the ESV, it probably says to make a nest. The point being that these birds come and make it their home. And the whole picture that we're supposed to have in our mind is the contrast between a few months ago, this seed was so small that the birds would have eaten it if they'd seen it. <laughs> That's how small it is. And now it's so big that loads of them can actually make this their home. You go from super tiny to super big. What's really interesting is that Jesus calls the grown plant a tree. <clears throat> Technically, mustard seeds don't grow into trees. They are annual plants, so they grow into a bush. And Jesus may not have intended to be speaking with horticultural precision here. His big point may simply have been, it grows from super tiny to super big. And I'm going to use the word of a tree to make you think just how big this is going to be by comparison to how small it was. That's true. But I wonder whether Jesus was drawing on Old Testament symbolism here to tell us something more about the tree, which is telling us about the kingdom of God. So in the Old Testament, if you um, flick back to Ezekiel, and Ezekiel chapter 31, it's on the screen if you don't have your Bible in front of you, <clears throat> God uses the imagery of trees to describe nations. So back in Ezekiel 31, we read, In the eleventh year, in the third month and on the first day, the word of the Lord came to me, to Ezekiel, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his hordes, Who can be compared with you in majesty? Consider Assyria, once a cedar in Lebanon, with beautiful branches overshadowing the forest. It towered on high, its top above the thick foliage. The waters nourished it, deep springs made it grow tall. Their streams flowed all around its base and sent their channels to all the trees of the field. So it towered higher than all the trees of the field. Its bows increased and its branches grew long, spreading because of abundant waters. Do you get the sense of the imagery that God is using? He's, he's speaking of the great Assyrian Empire and in a pictorial sense to try and get our heads around how vast this empire was. He's describing it as one of the great cedars, cedars of Lebanon, the, the tallest of all the trees that you could imagine. And what's interesting is what God goes on to say about how the other nations were blessed through Assyria. So if you look in verse 6, all the birds of the sky nested in its bows. All the wild animals gave birth under its branches. All the great nations lived in its shade. Did you see how God's using the picture? He grew this nation, this empire of Assyria, into a vast tree that was so big 
that other nations are pictured as birds that come and nest in it, that they find their home in it. And I wonder whether um, Jesus is picking up on this imagery in Matthew 13. If you want to go home, uh, Ezekiel 31 isn't the only place where God does that. He uses the same imagery in Ezekiel 17 and in Daniel 4. And I wonder whether Jesus is picking up on that idea here in Matthew 13, that the big point's really clear. You get amazing growth from a tiny plant into something great. That's clear. But I wonder whether Jesus is helping us see something of how the greatness of the kingdom is a blessing to his people in every nation. Just like in Ezekiel's day, as they look back to the Assyrian Empire, other nations came and found home here. Here's Jesus saying the kingdom of heaven is like this enormous bush plant tree that is going to grow to such an extent that the birds, the nations, all God's people from every nation, tribe, language, and people are going to gather in this tree, this kingdom. Now, either way, whether Jesus is drawing on that imagery or not, the big picture is great hope, which is what the disciples really needed to hear. Because think about who first heard this parable. Jesus has stepped away from all of the crowds. It's now just his disciples, 12 12 men, 12 people. And when Jesus was arrested and about to be killed, all 12 of them deserted him. After he'd been raised from the dead, uh, we read in the beginning of Acts that there are a gathering of believers at the very beginning of the early church, and there were a grand total of 120 of them. So 12 disciples who desert him, and then 120 at the beginning. That's tiny. That's mustard seed, tiny. And that's what Jesus is challenging his disciples about. What is your hope in? Is your hope in what you see of numerical size? Or is your hope in God's promise that he will build his kingdom in such a staggering way, the only comparison that will come to mind is a seed to a tree? His kingdom hasn't fully come yet. Still waiting for that great day. But if you look around the world today, you can see now how some of Jesus' promises are already now being fulfilled. So if you look back through church history, um, church historians tell us that about 200 AD, there may have been just over 200,000 Christians. By the 4th century there may have been as many as 33 million believers across the Roman Empire. About 10 years ago, the Pew Research Center did a survey of about 200 countries, I think it was. And they concluded that there may be as many as 2.18 billion Christians in the world today. Which about 11 years ago, was a third of the world's population. Now, I know we hear those kinds of surveys, and we've got lots of questions, and we're right to have questions. We'd have questions about the questions that were asked, 
We'd have questions about the responses of people and whether they really are Bible-believing, Jesus-following Christians. I know all of that, but, but don't lose sight in the midst of all of that of the enormity of the growth in a kingdom that started with 12 people who abandoned Jesus. The growth is staggering. And if you're a Christian here this morning, I hope your eyes are open to see something of that. Because it can be so tempting to be discouraged by what locally might feel small to us. But as you look around the world today, God is building his kingdom. And what began so tiny is already becoming greater and will continue to become greater until Jesus returns. But if you're not yet a Christian, can I ask you very honestly how you think about Jesus? Do you think of Jesus like the tiny mustard seed? Pretty unimpressive. Not likely to do anything. In fact, when you think about his death and the the brutality of that and the ending of his life so prematurely, maybe you think, well, actually, just could anything great and glorious come out of anything so pitiful and painful? That's the way you look at Jesus and his kingdom. Look around you today. See what is going on around the world. What began so small is growing exactly the way that Jesus promised. And that's what we need to be greatly encouraged by. Sometimes we read through these parables and there's lots of ways in which we find it harder to understand what Jesus would have meant than his disciples may have done 2,000 years before. This one, I think, we're supposed to be encouraged to see because there's things that we can see in its partial fulfillment today that the disciples couldn't have understood 2,000 years ago. It's meant to encourage us to see just how much God's kingdom is growing. Secondly, the growth of God's kingdom will be hidden from you. That's what Jesus teaches in the parable of the yeast, which is another one of those parables that's pretty straightforward. Jesus pictures a woman who is mixing the yeast into her flour to make her bread, which is also completely commonplace because there was no Greggs in first century Israel. So every family made their own bread. The only thing that's remarkable about this is the quantities that we're talking about. 30 kilos of flour is going to produce enough bread to feed about 100 people. That's like more than a student lunch, isn't it? This vast kind of quantity. And the key detail that matters is it's a small bit of yeast that transforms the flour into bread for all those people. Now, part of the main teaching in this very short parable is exactly the same as with the mustard seed. So what starts small, mustard seed, tiny bit of yeast, grows to an enormous size. And we're supposed to be encouraged that because God's promised the growth, it's as certain in his kingdom as it is that yeast is going to produce bread. But there's another aspect to this parable that's different to the parable of the mustard seeds. And that's the fact that yeast is hidden. You can't see it taking effect. 
but something from the outside is added to the inside of the flower that changes it from the inside. And I think that's why Jesus uses the particular word that he does in verse 33 to describe the woman uh, adding the yeast. In our translation, we've got uh, the woman took and mixed, there's the verb I'm thinking about, mixed into about 30 kilograms of flour. Um, Jesus doesn't actually use the word mixed here. That's the right translation in terms of us understanding what's going on. That's how anybody would make bread. You mix the yeast into the flour. But if you've got um, an ESV, um, it probably has the word hidden. The woman hid the yeast into the flour. And that's actually the literal translation that's most helpful. This verb is used 17 times in the New Testament. Every single time, it's referring to something being hidden. And that makes complete sense too, doesn't it? Because it physically gets so mixed up into the flour that you can't see it. So yes, it's mixed into the flour, but she mixes it by hiding it in there. Now, I don't want to overread and fixate on a particular verb, but it just seems a bit odd. It sticks out at me. Jesus could have just used a very ordinary verb for mixing, but he doesn't. He uses a word that everywhere else always means hidden. And I think yet again, Jesus is trying to teach us just how his kingdom's going to grow. It's not going to be by some external force. It's not going to be by some uh, demonstration of overwhelming power. He's going to build his kingdom by hiding his word in people's hearts and completely change them from the inside out. And that transformation is going to affect the whole of his kingdom. What begins as just a small gathering of people is, is going to have an impact that is as potent, it's as powerful as yeast being added to flour to turn it into bread. That is what is happening as men and women and boys and girls are coming into the kingdom of God. And it is growing and transforming all of God's chosen people. Some commentators think Jesus may also be reminding us of what happens personally here. I don't want to skip over this. I think the emphasis in the context is what goes on in the kingdom as a whole. But it's also just worth seeing that when anyone becomes a Christian, this effect of yeast in flour that transforms everything is true of us individually too. When you think about a Christian over the course of the whole of their life, maybe not from the very beginning, but over the course of their life, there is no flower in their life left unaffected by the yeast of the gospel. Jesus is king of all of it. He's king of our attitudes and our affections, of our pastimes and our pennies, of our today and tomorrow, of our words and our worries. He's king of all of it. And although that's perhaps not exactly where Jesus is focusing right now, I think the context is the bigger kingdom and how all of it is going to be transformed by the yeast of his word. Don't forget that wonderful truth too, which is clearly taught all throughout the scriptures. But I think the context here is helping us see that the focus is on the kingdom as a whole. And it's important that we keep context in mind because context helps us decide what is being spoken to here and how it's being spoken. 
Another way that that's helpful for us is when we think about the word yeast. So a good number of Christians hear the word yeast in the Bible and think, that's only ever a bad thing. And therefore, what this parable must be teaching us is actually something about how there will be struggle within the church all the way until the very end. And they would point us to a number of passages in the Bible where yeast is referred to in that kind of way. So when the Israelites are leaving Egypt, they have to leave all of their yeast and the leaven behind. Many of the sacrifices that needed to be made throughout the Old Testament had to not have any yeast in them. Get to the New Testament, Paul uses yeast as a warning himself. It wasn't all that long ago that we're in 1 Corinthians 5, and you might remember Paul using yeast as a picture of sin to show us that just a tiny little bit of sin has to get into the life of God's people. And all of a sudden it grows and it spreads and causes hurt and harm that's disproportionate to the size of the tiny little bit of yeast, meaning be careful of the yeast. All of that is true. But doesn't mean that yeast is always saying something sinful. And one of the the principles that we need to learn if we're going to handle God's word faithfully is to see that a word is defined by its context. Now let me use a different example to help you see the point and then we'll apply it to least uh, yeast. Um, serpents. Think about the imagery, the, the representation of serpents throughout the Bible. Are serpents good or bad in the Bible? Bad. Yeah, for all sorts of reasons. Serpents are bad in the Bible. Here's a quick survey for you. So you've got the devil appearing as a serpent to tempt Eve in the garden. Psalm 58 describes the wicked as having venom like the venom of a snake. David describes evildoers having tongues as sharp as serpents in Psalm 140. Jesus described the false teachers in his day as snakes and a brood of vipers. Revelation 12 is full of imagery of the devil being the ancient snake who leads the whole world astray. So beginning to end, snakes symbolize evil. But when the Israelites were bitten by poisonous snakes in Numbers 21, God tells Moses to make a bronze serpent and lift it high so that every Jew who'd been bitten who looked to that snake would be saved. And when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus in John 3, in the passage that includes for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That conversation, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, he points back to that story and says, that is foreshadowing me. Because I'm the son of man who has to be lifted up. How is he lifted up? Not in a glorious transformation for the entire world to see in his first coming, but upon the cross. I will be lifted up so that, what does Jesus say in John 3? So that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And then Jesus tells us later on in the gospel that we are to be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. So are serpents good or bad in the Bible? Depends on the context. They're mostly bad. Same is true with yeast. Sometimes yeast symbolizes the potent power of sin. And it's really key that we don't miss that. 
I don't do a lot of baking in our house. If you've been to our home and you've eaten Hannah's food, you know why. It's wonderful. I do make pancakes. It's amazing how little baking powder or yeast you need to add to get really big, fluffy pancakes. That imagery is meant to help us see how serious sin is. In our life, in my life personally, in our lives collectively as a church family, across all of the churches that would put themselves forward to a watching world as representing the Lord Jesus Christ and coming to tell others about him, you get just a little bit of sin in there. And the damage is massive. And yeast is meant to be a powerful symbol of that, but it's not the only way it's used. It's also used to show us the explosive power of the gospel. Uh, You see that actually there are some Old Testament sacrifices where yeast is to be used. Leviticus 7, Leviticus 23. But here in Matthew 13, the big point in this chapter is for Jesus encouraging the disciples to see how the kingdom of heaven grows. And Jesus pairs this parable with the mustard seed so that we would see that potent power of growth from what is so very tiny and indeed even hidden to a size that would leave you staggered. God grows his kingdom by hiding his word in the hearts of his people. And he brings that yeast to life through his spirit. All of which has Jesus right at the center. And that's the final thing we need to see this morning. The growth of God's kingdom comes through Jesus. If you are with us a couple of weeks ago, um, verses 34, 35, they sound very familiar if you flip back to verses 11 and following, <clears throat> where Jesus explained why he used parables. They have that dual purpose of revealing and concealing. If you love the Lord Jesus and follow him, then it opens up wonderful truth in really simple language that enables you to remember it and apply it to others. If you reject Jesus, this really simple parable just goes way over your head. And Jesus echoing some of that again as Matthew explains this purpose of parables in verses 33 and 34. But Matthew takes us a bit further. Verse 34, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Matthew's quoting, if you look at the footnote in your Bible, Matthew's quoting from Psalm 78, which hopefully is reasonably fresh to a good number of us because we looked at it in our home groups a couple of weeks ago. And if you can remember what we saw in Psalm 78, it's a, it's a, a big history lesson of all of about 500 years of history of the Old Testament. And all the way through that, Asaph, who wrote the psalm, is trying to help the people never forget what their own history has taught them. Time and again, we see the Israelites turning their back on God and willfully disobeying him and God being gracious and faithful to them despite their unfaithfulness to him. You see his grace poured over 
their wickedness. And Asaph is, is grabbing all of those bits of history together and saying, I want you to see this history like a parable. God's people are forever to use this record of the history of his people as a parable. To look at and think, we're doing it again. We need to learn from what God's done in the past. Learn the lesson of the parable. That's what Asaph's doing in Psalm 78. That's why he uses these words that are quoted in verse 35 for the very first time. But then Matthew takes those words and applies them to Jesus. And helps us see what Asaph was starting to do in the way that he taught parables so that people would learn lessons from the past. Jesus does perfectly. He takes that form of teaching a parable and uses it in ways that Asaph couldn't even have imagined. But it's more than that. I think what Matthew wants us to see here is that Jesus isn't just a great teacher. Jesus didn't just come to teach us things that were hidden since the beginning of time. Jesus himself came to reveal God to us. He is the one who spoke to his disciples, John 14. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, the great hidden creator who existed before creation ever began. And Jesus says, I have come so that you can see him. For I am him, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Eternally, together, one God in three persons. That's why the writer to the Hebrews begins saying that Jesus is the exact radiance of God's glory and the representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So can I ask you this morning... Have your eyes been transfixed by Jesus? Have you seen him not just as a great teacher, not just as the worker of miracles that are amazing? Have you seen him as the radiance of God's glory? That's why he came. He came to be the one who would bring God's kingdom in this world. He came to be the one not only to teach and explain, but to show us who God is. He came to reveal the glory and the majesty of God, but also to show us, like the bronze serpent, that as he was lifted up high upon the cross, sinful people like us can look to him and be forgiven. That's how he brings people into his kingdom and the works hidden. You're not going to see an enormous political campaign as you look upon all of the global developments of our world in the 21st century and think, oh, I can see that Christianity is taking an advance. All is well because the numbers are in our favor. God's kingdom is at work to go from the super tiny to the super big. And it will succeed because of who Jesus is. If you've never looked at him as anything other than an insignificant mustard seed, I plead with you to see who the Gospels present Jesus to be.